Welcome to a night of total terror. to the Undead Wookiee Podcast, Episode 8, The Wicker Man. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Now, we've got a great episode lined up for you here, and before I introduce my co-host tonight, I would like to take this chance to play for you guys the trailer for The Wicker Man. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood. to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Where is Rowan Morrison? If Rowan Morrison existed, we would know. I suspect murder. But Sergeant, I've already In the name of God, woman, what kind of mother are you that can stand by and see your own child slaughtered? You are the fool, Mr. Harry. You're liars. A despicable little liars. This morning time, I would like to take the opportunity to introduce our, well, my co-host for this episode, the incredibly clever, the exceptionally witty. We've been trying to get him on, well, I say we, that's the royal we, I suppose, but uh, I've been trying to get him on the show for a long time because we've talked about doing this episode for, well, it must be a couple of months now, but I would like at this moment in time to welcome... Mr. Liam Jones. Mr. Liam Jones, how the devil are you? Oh, not bad. Just coming out with some flu, though. So, you know, feeling a bit... <laughs> now, how? I mean, we've been talking... Obviously, tonight we're going to be talking about The Wicker Man. Oh, yeah. Um, 
And I mean, we we started talking about doing a folk horror episode. It must have been since the beginning, I think. I think yes, yeah, since, since day one, really. So it's going back a couple of months now. Um, but we finally got here, despite eventually. me lo- yeah, eventually, despite me losing our uh, uh, losing my voice, and now you having the flu. So we're um, we're ready to rock and roll now. Obviously, I figured it might be the cursed episode. <laughs> yeah, the cur- a bit like the poltergeist, the curse of the poltergeist. So uh, if this was the poltergeist episode, it would have been fantastic. I felt a bit of synergy there. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Already, you've 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 raised the IQ of the show by using the word synergy. Um, <laughs> now, of course, we're going to talk about uh, the Wicker Man, which is cool. a. Of course, we're talking about the original Wicker Man. We are not in any way, shape, or form going to be discussing the horrific, horrific Nicolas Cage remake. Thank you. I was hoping to avoid talking about it. To be honest, yes, I think if we get it out the way early, I. <laughs> We've shot the elephant in the room now. Yes, we. I'd quite like to take a chainsaw to it. It is. It's. It's not a great film. Um, I'm getting a bit annoyed about that film for one reason. People have kind of taken it as a sort of ironic comedy. Yeah, and watch it as I can't even watch it as that. It just annoys me too much. Yeah, well, well, this is the thing. It's sort of people sort of say, "Oh, well, it's so bad, it's good." It isn't. It's just bad. It's just. just, It just. Gets everything wrong. Oh, completely, completely. And I mean, you've got, you know, Nicolas Cage at the moment in time. He seems to go from, um, as he's almost become a parody of himself. Oh, God, yes. It's weird uh, to think he was an officer. Yeah, well, yeah, it's crazy to think that he's, you know, and you look at his body of work, you look at Wild at Heart, you look at Raising Arizona. I mean, even when you know you look at his action films like Face Off, Conair, the man is a very, very, very talented actor. However, at this moment in time, he seems to be in "I Will Work for Food" mode. It's um, it's not great. His output at the moment is dodgy to say the least. I'll give him one thing. I did like the film he did of Werner Herzog a few years ago. Well, he did that bad tenant film? Yes, he does. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, he does sort of threaten to make a bit of a to turn a corner. I mean, at the moment, he's got a film that he's just done with Paul Schrader, and I mean, Paul Schrader for me, I mean, Taxi Driver for goodness' sake is an out. It is a classic. Is it is a classic of cinema? But I haven't seen the. I haven't seen his latest film. I can't even remember the title. But the reviews for it are not good. Oh no! Are not good, but of course you know. I mean, it, it's a there we go. The the highlight of the Wicker Man remake was the fact that they got a poster of Edward Woodward in the background of the. That's literally the only thing that redeems it for me at all is a poster on a wall, which you can barely see. Yeah. <laughs> also, one of the strangest things about that film is its dedication. It's Remi- dedicated to Johnny Ramone from the Ramones. Now, see, we were talking about this today. Um, myself and my brother-in-law, uh, John, John Hunt, who is... Now, John is the bass player for Foreign Legion. And... Oh, that's the Foreign Legion before, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they've just been in Viva La Rock. I think they've made the top five albums of the year with their last album, which is really cool. Oh. And we were talking today, actually, about the Ramones, and we were wondering... Who's left alive? None of the originals. 
well, there's, I think it's the drummer of the original drummer. Um, oh, he died last year. He died last year, did he? I believe it was last year or the year before. It was Tommy Ramone. Well, there we are. There's none left. We're back to again. The curse name. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, back to the subject at hand. So we are going to be talking about the 1973 uh, Wicker Man, directed by... The yeah, the original and the best. Um, directed by Robert Hardy, uh, produced by Peter well, Schnell. Was it Schnell? How would you how would how would you approach well, that? Schnell. Schnell. The Wicker Man's a strange one because it's um, Robin Hardy directed it. Yeah, but it's been argued by a lot of people. It's kind of a directless film. Essentially, what made it good happened in spite of Robin Hardy as a director. <laughs> Essentially, its best aspects were due to everyone else except Robin Hardy. Well, I mean, which I feel a bit bad now because he died this year as well. I feel a bit the dead, but it's been commonly described. But it is kind of a film which didn't really have a director because he didn't really know what he was doing half the time. Well, I mean, that does really count for his filmography because when you look at what he's actually done, it's not. Oh, he's done It's not. Oh, a he lot. didn't do. <laughs> he's he's had a. There's a lot of exactly sort of he peaked way too soon. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, one of the driving forces, and I think we'll come on to that in a little bit more detail uh, later on, is of course the late great Christopher Lee. Of course. Um, who I mean, he essentially nearly did the did this film for not a lot of money. I think uh, he did it for, apparently. Well, I mean, and he even paid at one point for critics to come and see the film. Yeah, and one of the weirdest things he did was he actually went on a one-man sort of PR mission. He went to America by himself just to promote the film. I mean, that, when would you? I don't think in this day and age you would you would ever hear of in this far. Yeah, and I mean, a film. Christopher Lee, you know, is and I think he's a very underrated actor. I think he is a very very underrated oh. actor. I think he's a great character actor. Um, and you look at, I mean, he's got. Well, well over a hundred film titles, um, oh, God, yes. and I mean, of course, everybody knows him as Dracula, and now to sort of more modern audiences, he's known as Saruman. And but you look at the body of work that he's done; it it's is the, the most varied work you've ever seen in your life. Oh well, it, you know, if you think about it, you go from Dracula to the Man with the Golden Gun. You then he also films Devil like, Rides Out. Yeah, Devil Rides Out, another great film. Another oh, God, great yeah. film. Superb. Um, one of the best roles, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. However, Christopher Lee does say that The Wicker Man is his, his favourite his favorite film. Uh, He's, he sung its praises till his death. He always said it was, he went on a sort of one-man crusade just to sort of get the film the respect it deserved, really. And I think as, it's, as the film has got older... And more people have come back and looked at it and appreciated it. And I mean, there's a number of different cuts for the film. Oh, there three, I believe, in existence. Yeah. Um, but lead runner of horror, in a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think when you sort of go back and you look at this film and you sit down and you watch it, um, there are. Each time, it's another film that very similar to what we you know. Well, obviously, we it's a completely different end of the spectrum, um, where we talked about watching films like Blade Runner, like Big Trouble in Little China. You will always yeah. take something new from the film. 
you notice mm. something new every time. Yeah. Like yeah. this old... The weird one is about it, because there are three different cuts. Yes. And probably we'll probably go into this later on, how, why is there so many different versions of it? But um, what makes it unusual is, it's genuinely agreed on by fans that the middle cut is the best version. Yeah, yeah. Because I believe that the, the theatrical cut's too short. Yes. It sort of, it sort of just moves at a breakneck speed. Yes. Then you've got director's cut, which is interesting, but it is a bit too long, so it's a bit too much is left in so like some of it feels a bit padded out at times when the middle cut which is the final cut which was released for its 40th anniversary which i did manage to go get to see a screening of it yeah that is probably the best version of it because it just has the good balance it's got the good pacing but also it's got much more to it to keep you to keep this all the fans happy yeah yeah i mean the shortcut i mean essentially the reason why it's such a shortcut is and this is and i mean it's crazy to think about it, you know, about when you say the Wicker Man, because people sort of say, you know, recognize it now as a cornerstone of British horror cinema. And, and British cinema, no, mean, really. No, Christopher Lee for years yeah. denied it was a horror film. He was, he never saw it as a horror film. No, no. And I mean, I mean, I think it depends on which angle you want to come at it from. I think it's just it's its own film. It can't really be described in a way. No. And again, I mean, and I suppose that's where we come into our opening little gambit is, is it horror? Um, And if so, does it fall nicely into the folk horror genre? Well, the folk horror uh, sort of term, it's been, it hasn't been around for very long. I've noticed the first time I came across it was, Back in, I think it might have been about 2012, it might have been, or perhaps a bit before, Mark Atis did that three-part History of Horror series. Yes, uh, superb. Absolutely superb. A great watch. If you're just interested in horror in general, they're just good starting points to sort of learning more and more about the genre. But the second part is interesting because it focused on Britain during the sort of 60s and 70s, well, late 50s, 60s and 70s, so Hammer and also Amicus... And a lot of the other chances who attempted to sort of jump onto the hammer yeah. bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. But he talked about in the late 60s and early 70s, there was this little sort of a little subgenre of horror which just sort of appeared. And they weren't really connect each other except through just for their themes in a way. Um, and he refers to them as folk horror. And he sort of describes that they are kind of three different. Well, it's like a, an unholy trinity yeah. of folk horror. <laughs> yeah. And the first one of them would have to be is Witchfinder General. Yes, yes. Because that cements what the beginning of that sort of genre is. It's best way to describe folk horror. It's sort of it's horror which instead of deriving horror from like say in like the more gothic horrors, it derives it from like you know spooky castles, ghosts, and um, vampires. Yeah, yeah. And such. Or like this later on, like slasher films. You know, so it'd be like the violence and the gore. Mm. It takes a more sort of um, it looks more into the roots of horror in a way, going back to like. Um, folklore and legends of things like uh, satanic worship, pagan cults and all that. So it's looking more into the, our past essentially. So like what we've sort of buried away, but could come back. No, I mean, for me, I mean, obviously um, most people know that uh, I got married and I got married in Glastonbury and I was married uh, in a pagan ceremony in a hand fasting ceremony at the, the, at the goddess temple. And, um, it's 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 it, I find it fascinating, particularly the Wicker Man, because there are, there are so many things that I recognise in it, and there are so many things that myself, I'm, myself and my wife, we sat there and we rewatched the film recently, 
and there were so many things that we connected with uh with the film um but it is quite interesting how during the you know i mean the classic example of course uh, would be blood on satan's claw of how they managed to sort of yeah 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 and i mean they sort of they took that satanic edge to it whereas i think the wicker man in terms of its truthfulness um and its portrayal of and don't get me wrong they don't get it right all the time because i don't think you can i know it's been criticized heavily by a lot of like neo pagans have sort of been quite annoyed about some of it. although it's brought a lot of people to paganism it's got yeah. a lot it's like people's first exposure to it yeah yeah completely completely and you know there's sort of um there's bits in it where you kind of think oh well that's a bit sensationalized you know it's this it's that um but actually there's there's lots of things that you can recognize for it from it Mm, Um, and i don't think it's ever disrespectful well i've always gathered slightly that the writers have well i think well i think i remember anthony schaefer who essentially was one of the great driving forces behind it. The film would not have been what it was without Anthony Schaefer writing it. Mm. But mm. one of the things that makes it interesting is Schaefer actually said he would actually quite, you'd actually prefer it if mankind just went back to being pagan because he sort of, it's quite clear that his sympathies kind of lied in that sort of culture. Yeah, yeah. Sort of simplicity rather than um, in this. Well, one of the things that makes folk horror interesting is the period it comes out in. Because think about it's the late '60s, so you, at the same time you've got like the uh, the free love movement. You've also mm. interested um, in so people are taking an interest in things like the occult again. People are taking an interest in like paganism again. Because back in the 1930s, uh, the religion Wicca was formed, yeah, and yeah. it came in its own. In a, well, you got like bands like Led Zeppelin were taking an interest in sort of these sort of old occult practices and like pagan culture. So yeah. these films were kind of almost a reaction to that sort of idea. Mm. While Blood and Satan's Claw, as classic it is, it's quite a conservative film because it's quite condemning of the sort of, that sort of free love, hippie sort of world. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. A, a sort of that viewed from like the sort of Manson family sort of era. So that's like the sort of, that dark side of the 60s is sort of coming out. While something like Witchfinder General is actually quite, um, quite rebellious now because authority is shown as being oppressive and cruel. So... It shows that actually those who are considered to be like the um, the sort of sensible ones in society or the ones who are in control are actually the ones who are quite cruel and horrible. Yeah, I mean, for me, the Witchfinder General, um, it's all about Vincent Price. Oh, um, God, yeah. It's probably the best performance, I'd and say. I was, that's what I was about to say. I think his performance in it is is superb. Uh, and it's surprisingly quite toned down for him, actually. Oh, it's quite massively. subtle. Massively. And, it, you know, it, it does show that, you know, and I mean, Vincent Price has always showed his ability as an actor um, in very, very small flashes. Um, He's more camp and being over the top. and uh, Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even in films it, like uh, Fibes, um, there are still oh, it's, flashes it's in that. There oh, st- yeah. There's moments of sincerity and quite... quite pathos. And yeah. if you just go between all this sort of ridiculous camp, he's like, he's, you know, he's so... He's chewing the scenery in every scene he's in, really. <laughs> but in the best way possible, Doctor Fight is an incredibly camp film. It's well, it's a comedy essentially. Oh yeah, yeah, completely, completely. And it's, unashamed, it's unashamedly so. It's up. But what makes um, one of the things that makes Wishfinder General interesting? Have you heard the stories about how it was made? Well, I know that um, obviously there was a lot of tension between its director and between Vincent Price. They, um, they 
liked each other apparently. Yeah, and they clashed pretty much every single day. Um, and you can see that in his performance. Oh, so it's more subdued. He seems a bit more severe. He's a lot more. Um, he's lo- he's probably at his most menacing in that. I think he's probably. Oh, he's... he feels. He feels real. He feels because he's playing a real person for a oh, start. Yeah, Matthew yeah. Hopkins, yeah. real man, well, and a very horrible man at that. Well, to say that he was a bastard is an understatement, really. It's... Well, he's British culture's greatest villains in a way, and well, that's one of the things about folk horror. It taps into like British history and all that. because folk horror. For the most part, is a British genre. Like the other countries have had films which could be considered part of it, but as a genre, folk horror is probably the one the most distinctly British. Yeah, yeah, no, completely, completely. Now, here we go. Here's a slightly controversial one, and I, I don't know whether people sort of would say this is folk horror. Uh, Plague of Zombies, nineteen sixty-six, Hammer Horror. Would you say that that is a folk horror film? Totally. Yeah. Complete. Well, it's got it's got everything it kind of needs. Well, the most folk horror thing about it, the fact that some of the villains are fox hunters, <laughs> it sort of takes advantage of that sort of like the Britishness of it, the sort of British countryside, and the sort of um, it hasn't got some of the other folk horror themes. Like it hasn't got like their um, well, it's got a cult in it, but they're more rooted in Haitian culture. Well, a very yeah, um, yeah. not an accurate view of voodoo, to be honest. It's actually very um, very sensationalized and not very true to the real thing, but. Hammer kind of did did tap into the earliest examples of it. For example, he did another film called um, The Witches. Yes. Which came out in 66, I believe. And that's probably one of the first folk horror films, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. Well, an early example that ties into the sort of pagan culture and human sacrifice in the sort of very typical idyllic English countryside. It's all very... Um, I think that's one of the things I like about folk horror. It sort of takes this sort of idyllic countryside... And find something sinister in it. There's something evil well, under that, the surface. Well, that's the to thing, be isn't it? And there is that sort of, you know, yes, we could, you know, we, and particularly I think in South Wales, actually, because we are surrounded by countryside. Um, mountain. We're surrounded by mountains. And we, we just, you know, we're surrounded by the beauty of it all. But it can turn very, very quickly. And that sort of, jolly little walk out into the countryside can quite quickly go horribly wrong. Well, you have another writer called um, Arthur Machen. Have you come across him? No, I haven't come across him, no. He was a, um, a Welsh writer from near from Caerleon. Right. He was also um, one of H.P. Lovecraft's favourite writers. Yes. And he's one of Stephen King's favourites. Right. And he wrote many of his books. Most of his books are set in the Welsh countryside. They sort of tap into the sort of there's just something sinister under the surface. For example, one of them has like these mysterious creatures which live under the mountains in Gwent. <laughs> There's a few mysterious Lost creatures up. living under the mountains in Gwent to this day. People living above, in, uh, above Gwent are quite sinister. <laughs> but, um, that. but um, I think the thing about folk horror is it does sort of, um, with the sort of conversion to Christianity you had back in the Middle Ages or the early Middle Ages, you sort of feel like, because this culture was kind of brushed away and suppressed, but there's something under the surface, almost like wanting its revenge in a way. Mm, yeah. It's like a fear that there's ancient, something ancient and evil just waiting to come back and sort of get its revenge or uh, do what it likes, really. And yeah. that's quite a, and that's quite sinister. Although what makes Witchfinder General interesting is that the fact it's completely devoid of the supernatural. It's, oh, yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah. It's human horror. It's just the fact that 
horrible humans can be to each other, essentially. Well, if you think about it, we, you know, it isn't the ghosts, it isn't the witches, it isn't the demons, it isn't the summoning of the devil. It is, and essentially, I think the Wicker Man does sort of fall into oh, yeah. that itself. Is that actually this isn't monsters or ghosts doing these things to people? It's people doing it to other people. And the fact they're quite regular people a lot of the times, like in well, for one, in the Wicker Man, they just villager, they just these villagers in the Scottish village. Yeah, yeah, and well, they and they're doing it with such glee, which makes it even more <laughs> worse. The fact that they, well, that ending scene, the fact that they're singing and you know they're singing as well as as Edward Woodward is just being burnt burnt alive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, spoiler: um, if you haven't <laughs> seen the film. <laughs> Pause this podcast right now. Go and watch it, uh, and then come back. But you, yes, and I don't think it's possible at all to discuss the Wicker Man without obviously discussing the ending. So we are going to be in full spoilers here, ladies and gents. Um, and the posters and everything, so it gives away. Yeah, but the posters have always been awful at giving away the ending. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. I think everyone knows how the film ends, but it still leaves you shocked. That's what I'm. That's one of the most impressive things about it. You know how it's going to end. Yes, but you still, you still, you're still terrified. You're yes. still on the edge of your peaks. You, you keep every time you watch it, you keep thinking, "Is he going to make it this time?" You know, will the police come over the horizon in helicopters and come rescue him? But <laughs> it never happens. No, it doesn't. And it, you know, um, and I'll come on to the character, you know, Edward Woodward's, Edward Woodward's character a little bit later. But um, that's the thing. I think it, it it's, it's. Still, even you know when he's pleading and he's praying, and he, it's it's heartbreaking. Nothing, nothing happened, and this. What makes him unusual? He's he's not very. He's not the most likable of characters. Well, no, he's but, not. He's a he's a tell, dick. In all honesty, he's <laughs> he's self righteous. He's, he's pompous. Oh God, yeah, and he's doing the right thing. Really, he's his. Well, he's doing his job. You know, till the end. Yes, he's, he's been paid by everyone. Everyone's manipulated him. You think. He's been doing everything he can to sort of uphold the law. And what happens? Well, they toast him. <laughs> Everyone, he gets played as a fool by every single person. Like, that moment, I love it. You know when he discovers that Rowan is actually one of them? Yes. His face, you could just see it just in that second. That he's, <laughs> The penny drops then, he just realises, oh, God. <laughs> it's like yeah. This is not going to end well. It's this... just that look of... He yeah. just everything comes together and he goes, oh, I should have seen this coming. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's been a bit of a recent revival in terms of folk horror, I think most notably in uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch. I uh, thought it was fantastic. I thought it was great. I thought it was... I, I quite enjoyed the film. I did think... Um, I, I don't know whether I bought into some of the marketing a, a little bit. I sort of... It did suffer from its own hype, I believe. Yes, I think it did, yeah. I think it did. Wish I put before the hype had built up too much. Yes, yeah, and I think um, I think the performances in the film are fantastic, um, and the atmosphere oh, is great. But it's nice, and yes, and it's nice to see it's horror cool. going back to atmosphere instead of jump scares. Well, it's essentially it's like a, it's a psychological horror. Oh yes, asked as a as like a folk story, sort of like well, that's what it's called. It's a the Witch, a New England folktale. Yes. And I like the... If you look at some of the research, at some of the stories, it all adds up, because they even said they did meticulous research into, like, cases from the time and all that famous... 
like witch trials or how what people believed mm. a witch was capable of and it's so it's so clever how it it ties in sort of real folklore and sort of real mythology from the era and i think and it, you know it just looks beautiful oh and it's it's sort of this sort of a very sort of desolate beauty to it but it's it looks depressing it is it's horribly depressing it's not a feel-good so, film is it it's gray and drab it's like waking up in, in winter in wales to be honest <laughs> it's horribly gray it's just dull and just just sad and depressing but it's got a beauty to it it's sort of a beauty and a sort of just horribleness but so, I, I think no go, oh, on, sorry. go on no carry on don't carry on I like about it is that sort of um, one of the most rewarding thing is if you know a bit about that era the sort of 17th century, you know, the sort of colonization of the Americas. Yeah. Sort of makes it more rewarding in a way because you've got a more, because it doesn't really explain itself very much. It doesn't explain the sort of culture of the time. You just sort of, you're in that world. Yeah. And I, that was actually one of the things that I do, it sort of, I, I did really, really appreciate about the film. And I do appreciate is that it treats its audience like adults. It didn't feel Which the need to explain everything. Well, you're thrown into the action immediately, really, because essentially they're being banished from the from the colony straight away. And for being far too puritanical for the Puritans, Puritans. <laughs> which, is, which is amazing in a way. Because that's what I like about it. it. It feels like you've got a snapshot of a period of history. You like you are in a you are like you are there. You've been taken back to like the, to the mid 17th century, yes. and that's quite fascinating. I feel it's quite. Um, but it finds that real horror in it because a lot of it's quite up until like the last about ten minutes. It's a very quite believable film at times. Oh yeah, completely, completely. And I think, yeah. and I think that kind of disarms some people when they come to it. Mm. I think they, they, I think they go to it expecting the Blair Witch. Oh yes. And then they get something very, very different. They get a very, very adult horror. And I think, unfortunately, I think that's what sort of. Um, stops it getting that wider appreciation. Oh, it wouldn't get. I don't think the mainstream would have got it. But one of the things I think it makes it a bit impenetrable. But I actually quite like this as an aspect of it. Was the language? Oh, completely. The fact that a lot of early modern English is being used, a lot of historical sort of language is being used, and I think that really makes it. It makes that sort of believability sort of get taken into this world. Yeah. Another film which did a similar thing, which I think could go into the folk horror category is a field in England. Yes, yes. Now, I've got to be honest, I have it on DVD and um, I still haven't seen it. <laughs> bizarre one. It's, uh, it's not a horror film per se, but Ben Wheatley, essentially, I think he's been on a bit of a one-man crusade to make um, folk horror mainstream, essentially, to sort of... Um, <laughs> Was it, well, Kill List is essentially quite turns into a turns into a folk horror film, and it's like last twenty minutes. Yes. Now, yes. Sightseeing is, is like a modern day folk horror story. Yeah, yeah. But he finds uh, and this well field in England is essentially going back to um, sort of Witchfinder General. It's the English Civil War, and it's finding that sort of um, that sort of like it, well, as a lot of it's we're very well researched into the folklore of that era. For example, you've got like the um, the belief in like the fairy circles and mm. their uh, and the sort of that culture of the time and how uh, people genuinely did believe in things like the devil and all that. People genuinely feared these sort of things. It was actually uh, something which really was on people's minds at the time. And I like uh, I like how that was tied in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, ha 
I, it's been sat there now for a very long time, and it's something that I keep. I'll get. I'll get around. I just. It just haven't got round. But I will definitely be looking that one up. So I'm going to put I'm you on the spot like... a little bit now, dude. I'm going to put you on the spot. What? what is your top? I'll say top three, top five folk horror films. Well, oh, that's a good one. I think for people starting off in the genre, mm. they can't go wrong with like the the unholy trinity. You know, they've got to watch The Wicker Man. Yes. Because I think that's the ultimate sort of folk horror film. It's the one that sums it up. A whole subgenre summed up in one film. Yes. You've also got um, Witch, Witchfinder General is also a must-watch. Yes. And, um, and of course, uh, Blood and Satan's Claw has to be seen because that just sums it up very well. The sort of, particularly the period folk horrors they have. The sort of, um, particularly like, they, like they seem to, the 17th century seems to be the perfect period for it. Yes. But like the whole idea, because people, the witch trials were rampant at the time, so it it just makes sense that it there. But there's, some, uh, there's a few other smaller examples which I think people should perhaps pay more attention to. There's one I saw, God, God, God knows how many years ago, and I haven't seen it for a long time, but it's an interesting one. It's called, um, I think it was The the Warlock. Yes, yes. It was a bizarre 80s one, but it, it tied in a lot of actual... Julian Sands and Richard E. Grant. I think that might be the yes, one. Yes, yes, Warlock. Um, but they take loads of like actual 17th century magic. Like they actually yes. said, it's so ridiculous in the film. But when you actually look it up, it actually is what oh, people believe. It's a completely bonkers film. It is as camp as a yeah. row of tents. It but... 80s horror, easy horror films, oh, really. Sort yes. of... And Richard E. Grant sports quite possibly the worst Scottish accent. Um, this side of uh, Christopher Lambert uh, in Highlander. Did he even try? (laughs) It is, you know, it's, well, ironically, it's probably as good as Sean Connery's Irish accent then in The the Untouchables. Um, (laughs) It is... um, This is the first time they've got Sean Connery to play an Irishman either. No, no. He He did a Disney film called Darby O'Gill and Little People, and for some reason they decided to cast him as an Irishman and get him to sing, which is even worse. <laughs> Look, a that's quite no, folk horror, actually, because that taps into Irish folklore a lot, such as the... In terms of Sean band. Connery and horror, nothing will be more horrific than his mankini in Zardos. If I'm quite honest, I, I absolutely adore Zardos. <laughs> All the wrong reasons. I, I think the film is... It's one of those classic bits of just British trash cinema, you know, just... It's just an it's, insane film. It's just oh, it's an insane film. film. Which is, I think, worth a, a podcast in the future, because that's one that's got some fantastic on-set stories. Oh, it, it is a film that is absolutely crazy. It is a crazy, crazy film. It needs and to be seen to be believed. It does. So, back to The Wicker Man. Um, of course. And so, let's have a little look at the cast. You have got Edward Woodward as our lead. Now, obviously, Edward Woodward was known at the time for uh, a TV series called Callan. Uh, and he'd later go Equalizer. Uh, and of course, <laughs> and then he would come find a lot of fame as the Equalizer. Um, we've got Ingrid Pitt, uh, who is the librarian in this film. Uh, you've got, yes, you've got Brett Eklund. <laughs> now, she's got in, now, her story in the film is quite bizarre, to be honest. I... I yeah, we'll come on to her in a second. And do you know what? I, 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 if the film has got an issue, and I think I don't think I think the Wicker Man is an excellent film. 
I don't think it's a perfect film. Oh, God, I think that's why we love it so much, is we can see yeah. those things. Yeah, I don't think it's a perfect film, but one of my major issues in the film is Britt Eklund. Um, <laughs> she is my biggest issue in it. Um, you've, you know, we've said you've got uh, Diane uh, Galento. You've then got, of course, the the driving force behind the madness that is the Wicker Man is Sir Christopher Lee. Um, and I think the best place for us to start really would be with at the beginning, you know, with our lead character, with Edward Woodward. Um, now his character is not the most likable. He's a fascinating one because when people talk about the Wicker Man, they often come back to this. Always brings up the ending, yes, or Christopher usually. But yeah. I think people, I think people are neglecting Edward Woodward because I think he's probably he gives the performance of his career. I'd say he probably gives a fantastic performance, one he was always very fond of as well. He always admitted that he loved the part. Yes. Yeah, he yeah. always had a great, a great love for the character because he, he think he, uh, I think he knew. He was playing a very interesting character, a very complex character. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? He, the, Sergeant Howie is, like you said, he is, he's almost puritanical himself in his beliefs. Um, and I think he's, and I've got the, the novelization of the film, and they do actually go into detail of what religion he actually is. And throughout the book, he actually does make pot shots at other Christians because he's that, he's that devoted yes. to his religion, essentially. Now, of course, you you mentioned the book there, um, and the source material was by David. Is it? Would you say David Pinner or David Piner? I've, I've always said Pinner because um, I've always I've always I've never heard his name said. I think I think when I I think I heard it once by Christopher Lee himself. Yeah. In and, one of the interviews, no, and I think he the Pinner. Yeah, and so the, the source material is the ritual or ritual. Yes. Um, I've not read it myself. Uh, I've I, got a here actually oh, it might be a case of I should really be getting myself on Amazon and uh, digging it out so of course you've read it what's your take on it and how does it compare in terms well, of the film and uh, well, and the book well the story behind it is a bit unusual because um, Pinner essentially wrote the, the ritual with the well, he wrote it as a screenplay originally mm. and he showed it to a few directors and some took a bit of interest and eventually, as he was right, when he sort of showed it to, um, uh, I believe it, he wrote, he showed it to uh, Anthony Schaefer, who was the writer yeah. and producer, Peter Schnell, and Christopher Lee saw it as well. They all three of them took great interest in the actual script. But after a while, Schaefer sort of looked through it, and he said that he sort of believed that the novel was would very, would sort of translate not very well to the screen. Right. But it is a good novel. It's very expressive. It's very. Um, quite lyrical it's quite fascinating and all that's quite it's very different from the wicker man itself actually for one the main characters are absolutely nothing alike right <laughs> in the book um, they've all got unusual things like for example in the ritual the character's got a um, a condition where he can't actually um look out he can't actually go out into the sunlight without wearing sunglasses because he's got some sort of eye condition right and that's a, a plot point sometimes but the fact he can't actually um, take these sunglasses off and also the setting is different. For one, the book's actually set in Cornwall. Right, okay. The film does better having it set in a remote Scottish island because the stakes are a bit higher there. You know, it's yes. isolated from Cornwall. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're never too far away from anything. But um, it's an interesting one. Because um, later on, they did do an adaptation of the film as a novel, 
which right. is pretty much exactly the same story, but with little, little, just little bits added. Essentially, there were scenes like which I've either been lost since, yes, or never into the actual film, yes. or you know they never filmed. So it fleshes out a lot of the characters, gives you a bit more. Uh, it makes Howie a lot more interesting as well because it actually shows what Howie got up to in Scotland before, mm. before he ever started his case, which you get hints of in the in the director's cut, but not very much. So you get to learn more about his character, you get to learn more about his. Um, it kind of makes you like him a bit more sometimes. Well, that's the thing. He does come across as completely unlike. I mean, the way in which he behaves when he when he walks into the pub, um, and he's appalled and shocked. Uh, by the behaviour of the locals, um, and the way in which they don't show him any respect, I think that's a great scene because oh, it's a great character. Yeah, and I think that's again one of, the, one of the things that really yeah, yeah really well like, yeah yeah completely conflict perfectly the fact they don't you know he doesn't trust anyone there because to be honest since he's got on the island they haven't been very helpful <laughs> to say the least. Um, but the what I love about that scene is he's he that could have been such an overblown scene. Oh, he, and he, he does it with such he commands sort of um, attention. Yes, I yes. think it's fantastic. You got, a, you got a, a scene full of all these quite larger than like people. You know, they got these. They're all kind of just caricatures of sort of like a Scottish of like sort of whiskey galore or something like yeah. that. They're all. Like, <laughs> They're all like these sort of bearded fishermen and um, farmers. They all look very uh, rustic types. Also, the fact what makes it interesting is um, who, who who the innkeeper's played by. Oh, um, uh, Kemp. Say it again. Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay Kemp. Yes, he's an interesting one because he was originally, I believe, a uh, let, me, let me check this up. He was a a dancer and a mime artist originally. He'd become a very well respected one, but he has won the most. Unusual connections in the film, I believe, because okay. he was actually uh, David Bowie's uh, mime teacher. <laughs> I'm not even making this up. <laughs> no, no. Look, I love. I got. I. I absolutely adore trivia, um, and that. That that that's just that is the, possibly one of the best pieces of trivia I've ever heard. It's one of the straighteners. Kemp was a very respected man. He was a very respected for his profession, and he had established himself as an actor in a few films. Like he'd appeared in the Vampire Lovers with um, the Hammer film. Yes, yes. And it's one of the one of the many films. The many of the films very strange connections it has. It's the only film which you can say that David Bowie and Rod Stewart are somewhat connected to it. <laughs> Before we get on to the Rod Stewart thing later on, I believe. Yeah, I, I mean, how, on your CV, <laughs> that must be something. You know, somebody's looking. All oh, right, so you were in this. You were the, right. I, you were David Bowie's mime teacher. That's that. that that's a showstopper. That's a showstopper, isn't it? Well, what I love about him in the film is the fact that for the entire film. Edward Woodward is so he plays everything so straight. Yes, he's so straight with his um, performance. He's he's very he's quite understated. He's actually very funny at times. Actually, yes, he is. There's some great little moments. Just his react, just watching his reactions to things. Just how he looks so baffled by everything he's seeing. Well, he's either incredibly annoyed at something, 
or he's just confused and he just and to be honest we're watching it i think we're just as confused as he is sometimes oh well, yeah yeah and i think some of that is down to uh, the direction or lack of direction um but one of my favorite scenes where you just look at the look at his where he sort of takes a little stroll outside and then sees everybody having sex on the common green <laughs> out of the common um, and it's, it's one of the most just comes out of nowhere <laughs> Nobody sees... I've watched the film countless times now, I think, and every time I see it, it baffles me. It, it's, And I don't think it was in the original cut either. I think it's in the, it's in the later two. It's in the, it is in the later two, yeah, because, again, it, in terms of driving the story forward, it does, you know, yes, it adds... Doesn't, no, it doesn't sort of serve of, anything. But, it adds a bit of character for him. Like, yes. you sort of get an idea of what his personality's like, but other than that, it's just... Yeah. It just sort of... Just, happens and just sort of it never really gets brought up it gets brought up once i think in one bit of dialogue i think he mentions it but that's a that's about it and it's it's one of the most strange moments it's it's a film full of very strange and very very unexpected moments but that is probably one of the crowning yeah yeah well there's probably a few I have to think about this one, but I think there's probably a moment in that film which I think is going to, which would top it. I'm gonna have a fellow have a think about that for yeah, the podcast. I mean, my other, my other favorite scene is when he goes to the school. Oh, that's a cl- and which one scene they got completely wrong in the remake? Yes, yeah, yeah. They so, they try to top it and they can't because it's such a, it's a great scene. But it, it is a it, great scene because the music in that scene is fantastic. Oh, the yeah. It's absolutely fantastic, and it's as a you know in terms of creating this community, um, this biz, you know this this bizarre community that is all held together by their belief um, in the old gods, and that they all need to be part of this conspiracy. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's how nobody bats an eyelid to how strange it is. Nobody ever... There's no one on in the village, in this whole society, who just steps up and goes, hang on, this is all a bit odd, this is. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Nobody's... And it's there's probably, been nobody in this... Oh, sorry. No, go, and it's probably one of the strangest sex education lessons that you've ever come across. And I'm, I'd like to think a lot of those scenes were done without telling Edward Woodward what was going to happen. <laughs> Because he can genuinely look very, very confused in some scenes. I'd like to think they just let him sort of wander onto certain scenes and just sort of just throw something in his face to confuse him. <laughs> but it's, you know, but again, it builds this film. It builds and it builds and this sense of the bizarre that it's, something it's, is not right. Well, it starts off, it's quite a straightforward film at the beginning. It's almost like it's a crime film at the start. Yes. Yes, it is. And then... It starts doing things which are like this month. That's not what this film, you know, it's not what this sort of film would do usually. No, no. And, but also like, and it does things which a horror film wouldn't do. So you're like, so what's this film? What's it? What's it playing at? Essentially, why is there songs coming out of nowhere? Why is there? You know, why are these just coming and going with no particular reason? Why is this happening? And yeah, you're you feeling you feel for Sergeant Howie by the end of it because you're just as confused as you're trying to figure out what's going on as much as he is. Yes. Now, I think it's. We, we, let's get to her now. Let's get the let's get the negative bit done and dusted. Britt Eklund. 
She's a bizarre one in that film because you could clearly, you know what, you obvious why she was cast for the part. Oh well, it, you know, it's clearly not her acting ability. She was a big actress at the time. Yes. And massive sex symbol. Yes. She was going to draw attention at least. But what makes her very strange is this has been debated by loads of people. She doesn't speak her lines in it. No, she doesn't. Essentially, her, there are three actresses who play her part. It's her herself. Somebody is a body double for one scene. Yes, famously. And because she was pregnant at the time, apparently. Yes. And um, there's a, there's a, I think I can find the name here somewhere, but there was a, um, it's believed that uh, uh, Rachel Verney. Yes. Did a dialogue and a singing voice. Yes. Um, which is one of, the, one of the strangest things. I think what makes the film so fascinating. If you actually look at the cast, hardly anyone is Scott. There's actually no Scottish actors in any lead parts. No, no, there's not. No, there's not. There's... You've got um, Edward Wood was English. Yes. Christopher Lee is English. Yes. Brett Eklund's Swedish. Yes. Uh, Diane Calento is Australian. Ingrid Pitt's Polish. <laughs> Lindsay Kemp was, um, was English as well. Yes. There's absolutely no Scottish actors in any major part of the film. No, no, it's not. And it's sort of... But at no point do you question it, with the exception of Britt Eklund. Because you can clearly tell she's been dubbed in by a Scottish woman. Yes. Yeah. That's clearly not her. And again... But I think that's sort of surrealism. It's almost got like a sort of surrealism running through it. it yeah, it does. And I mean, it, again, it, goes, it does show the strength of... Um, the you know the actors around her that you know it's quite clear that when she's delivering her lines it's a little bit wooden. Oh yeah, you can clearly tell it's been it's what she's saying was recorded afterwards. Yes, and the fact that they their performances are so strong. Oh God, yes. But um, I think she is my biggest problem in the film. Oh yeah, she has uh, some. Some unusual moments, although she does get one of the, I think, one of the best lines in the film. Come on, then. What is it? It's, it's that line, then, when Howie's having food at the uh, at the inn, at the Green Man, at the Green Man Inn, and um, yeah. he comments on how, uh, was it, uh, how broad is it? Beans shouldn't be the colour of turquoise. Yes. And implies that some things in their most natural state are the most vivid colours. It's one of the strangest innuendos I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Because that character speaks purely in innuendo. Oh, yes. She is essentially Nothing. the insertion of a carry-on film, isn't she? Well, She's... that's what, well, she what I a... like about the way it's the ultimate British film, because it's got, it's a, it's got like, sort of hammer horror in there, because it's got the of, like, Lee and Pitt. Yes. They've also got this sort of, like a, like a carry-on film, this sort of, like, the sex comedy, the sort of <laughs> ridiculous slopes of innuendo and um, camp humour. In fact, um, Look at Lindsay Kemp's, Kemp as the innkeeper. He, he would fit right in place. Well, he does, doesn't he? he? He's essentially the, the Sid James of the film. Oh, uh, yeah, well, I think Kenneth Williams at times. <laughs> he seems to be flip-flopping between God knows how many different keys. He's like a one-man carry-on film. Well, were you saying about some of the, the lines and the innuendo? I think so many. there are so many great lines in this film. And I think that's what everybody, like we, and we keep going back to it, People talk about the ending, but actually there are some brilliant, brilliant one-liners in the film. 
Well, personally, my favourite one is when um, there's a sequence where um, Howie visits Lord Samurail, played by Christopher Lee. Yes. Essentially, he needs the permission of Lord Samurail to exhume the grave of the little girl who's done. Yes. And as he's coming in, he saw a bunch of essentially girls dancing naked on a fire, which is, <laughs> of course, is, baffled, is completely baffling to him, which, to be honest, is probably confused a lot of people if they saw that in person. Yes. But um, it's just, he, and he does one of those, his line goes, um, Oh, he says something like, uh, I said about them dancing, and I believe Edward Woodward replies, uh, but you know, but they're naked and they're... And Christopher Lee replies, oh, well, naturally, it'd be far too dangerous to dance uh, dance with fire with your clothes on. Yes, that, well, when he turns around, he says, um, um, Sergeant Howie, but they are, and there's a big pause, they're naked! And then he sort of, you know, well, naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. <laughs> it is, it's true, but... <laughs> Well, it, it does make a good point. The but it other, does make a good point, but you're like... The other great how, Christopher Lee line in it. a light eyelid at it. That's the thing I love about it. He just treats it as completely <laughs> completely normal. Yes. Well, what's your problem? It's, uh, you know, the other great Christopher Lee line in it is, do sit down, Sergeant. Uh, shocks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. <laughs> it's so many cracking little... It's, it's for even if it's a character who's in it just for a little bit. For example, you've got the grave digger. Yes, and he's because he they they're so wonderfully bizarre. Some of them are just some of them. They're just cameos. Some of them they were character actors. For example, uh, the grave digger is played by Aubrey Morris, who is uh, most of us would know from um, he'd appeared in a uh, Clockwork Orange. That's right, he did. That's he right, was he the uh, the youth worker. And he, he plays everything with this sort of sleazy campness, this yeah. sort of ridiculous, <laughs> over-the-top, this bizarre little character who just appears for a little bit. Yeah, the, and and again, I think that is something that adds to this film. It just, it binds the film that you, you have... Remember, you remember every little character. Yes, you do. And, you know, even down to the you know the locals that you first meet... Uh, when he gets he gets out of his plane, uh, and they get and on the boat with the all sea and I. Yes, and he meets the the ferryman. He meets like, the harbour master. Or yes, the, and you recognise for the film. You keep seeing him again and again, and you keep going. Oh, it feels real then, because you know you're like you become you see this sort of community. These people all feel like they actually do know each other. That they do live in this place. Yeah, well, but but I what's interesting though is. And we've said how, <clears throat> excuse me, how strong Edward Woodward is in this film. Oh, but his part was offered to three other actors first. Oh yes, I've heard a bit about this, which I can't see anyone else playing it. That's well, originally it was offered to Peter Cushing, Michael York, and uh, Michael York, as Michael York, and then David Hemmings. Which I know they were both singers. I think I could never buy Hemmings as he was at that time, as a puritanical policeman. No, no, and Michael I mean, York. I could buy it. Yeah, but he's a bit too good looking. Yeah, Edward Woodward looks. He's just perfect. The part. I think Lee. I think Cushing would have been too old for the part. I feel. Yes. Yes. He, I, I probably wouldn't. Even though I love Peter Cushing in anything he's in, no matter how bad the film is. I mean, it would not be part for him. No, I mean one of my favourite Peter Cushing films is the legend of the seven golden vampires which um, is a 
daft film. It's an incredibly daft film. Oh, it's it's just it's just, it's just ridiculous. It you know it's you know it's, it's hammer on its half legs. Oh yes, completely, completely. It's like well, what it's are we catching on the, the kung fu craze essentially? The sort of keep in the box office. Yes, well, it's like well, what's popular at the minute? Kung fu. Okay, what have we got? We've got Van Helsing. We've got okay. Well, Peter Cushing. Just chuck them together. Um, you know, but he's brilliant in it. He is absolutely I, I, superb. What I like about Cushing as an actor is that he approached every part he did with professionalism. He always gave it. He always gave his all for whatever part you, he was doing. Yes, and I mean, I mean, Shockwave. Was, was, have you seen Shockwave? I don't know. I have not seen Shockwave. Where he plays the um, he plays the Nazi on the island. Um, oh, I've heard. Yes. In terms of the film, it's okay. It's not his. It's it's not a great film. However, he is he's superb. He's he acts his heart out in everything. He is so believable. He is so believable. Um, so I think he's probably the most underrated actors Britain has ever produced. I think you. Pro- yeah, I think you're probably right there. I think it's. I think he is. You know, he's outstanding. But I think he would have been totally miscast in this role. He would have probably been fantastic at playing it, but yeah, I would just be looking at him going, "That's just Peter Cushing." <laughs> <laughs> why is Peter Cushing? Why is Brett Eklund trying to seduce Peter Cushing? Because that would have been really he, creepy. Is, well, he was, he was like in his sixties, probably about the time in his fifties, maybe. Yeah, because yeah. he was well, he around about this time he was doing the Dracula eighty nineteen seventy two, and oh. was not oh. doing pretty well. Well, before his wife had died for a start, so his um. Health had taken a real, had plummeted essentially. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, looked, he looked old. He probably looked older than he actually was. And yes, yes, I would never have bought him as Sergeant Howie, but with Woodward, that it just comes into place because his character is just—he just—he is that character. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, he is, and he embodies it, and his physicality, oh. and his—you know—the way he speaks. Yes, yeah. Oh, he's, he nails it. He absolutely nails it because it doesn't sort of come across as, you know, that sort of a kind of Scottish accent. It's, it feels it, real. It, it does feel real. And we've talked about the sort of the surreal nature of the film and how bizarre and ridiculous some of the moments are in it. It does not, there is not a moment in this film where you think it doesn't feel real. With He's kind of a great sort of, he keeps the film grounded. He's a great sort of person to watch the film with. Because if you notice, he's in almost every single scene. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, he doesn't... I don't think he leaves the he's screen f- for the entire... For longer moment. minutes. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, you, the other person you do have to mention, because we've got to sort of try and get round to every... Is Ingrid Pitt. Of course. I mean, she is one of the original screen, scream queens. Um... I mean, her, you know, you look at the films that she's been in. Uh, I mean, you just need to mention The Vampire Lovers for a start. Uh, oh, she just, Count- as the sort of, as the, 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 sort of the, the, the great sort of vampire of British horror. She was a, and also I think the fact that she was Polish added to that mystique about it. She had the sort of, you know, the accent and all that. She had the sort of authenticity to her in a way. Well, in the same way as sort of Bella Lugosi. Uh, oh, they had that sort of. Exotic nature to them in the way. Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, um, Countess Dracula, um, Carmilla, you know, the house that dripped blood. Um, you, oh, she, 
best of the time. She's, you know, she was in it. And I mean, of course, she is in one of the greatest boys' own adventure films. You know, Where Eagles Dare. Of course, one of the classics, one of those. A film which sort of sticks its finger up to um, logic and reason at times. It, you know, and I think Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. What more do you need? I love it with um, you've sort of got Richard Burton who sort of he's quite he's a bit of an over actor at times and he's a stage <laughs> actor and you've got Clint Eastwood who's very much an under actor. Yes. So it's quite bizarre watching them on the screen together because you have got one who just doesn't who's who underacts everything and one who's quite sonorous and quite you know quite dramatic with all his delivery. Yeah. Now, what is your opinion of Ingrid Pitt's performance in this film? Well, what I like about it. In some way, she's cast completely against type. Yes. And I think they did that on purpose, to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... When you well, look... she's a librarian. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. I mean, you look at... I mean, look, all we have to do is mention the vampire lovers. And, mm. and then suddenly and we look at her in this, and she's playing a librarian. But she does have one of the funniest scenes in the film. As Howie's probably you probably know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As um Howie's doing his search of the of the of Summer Isle, he ends up opening the door and he discovers Ingrid Pitt in the bathtub. Yes. Completely naked. Yes. And his reaction is priceless, I think, is is as once again a testament to Edward Woodward <laughs> as an actor. But then the it, fact he's able to portray this sort of this awkward innocent um, character who is striving to be in total control of the situation, and it's completely unraveling. And it's and again, it's we're almost entering into sort of carry on, carry on camping oh, yes. type type sort of you know areas or you know confessions of a window cleaner moment, isn't it? <laughs> well, one thing I'd give it, it has got a few. There is a strange thing; it has got a few connections to carry on camping. Well, yeah, and I mean, and. This is the thing. If you think about, particularly British cinema at that time, um, it's for the large proportion of its output were sex comedies and horror films. Yeah, they were the two most popular things at the time. You would you'd go to the cinema, and literally the probably the two biggest films would probably be a Hammer film, yeah, or a Carry On film. Yeah, and if you think if the actors weren't either in a Carry On film. They were going to pop up in a Hammer film. If they weren't mm. in a Hammer film, they were going to pop up in an Amicus film, or they then they again they pop up in on the buses, or you know, it's and, well, they, well on the buses it's a Hammer film. Yeah, it's it's they were, from, they were often made at the same studios as well. You know, and I mean, it's incredible to think that out of all of this, out of all of this sort of hodgepodge of. Um, actors who you, you you don't think really would be in you know cast in these films. You've got Christopher Lee who takes it you know you know essentially does it for free. You've got Brett Eklund who's playing a part, but actually you've got two other actresses giving her performance. Um, and what we get is a classic, a classic of not just British cinema but of cinema. It is. Oh yeah. You know, it is a testament to everybody around this film. Well, going back to the Hammer point, actually, there's an interesting Hammer and Carry On connection, I'd say. 
well, Carry On Screaming is actually filmed on a lot of Hammer sets, apparently. Well, yeah, I mean, the the large... The Uri- yes, yeah, yeah. Um, they took a bit of a page out of old Roger Corman's book. Um, oh, just, yeah, you be using what you have. Yeah, and just repainted and turned things round, and, or in some cases, not even bothering. Oh, you just... Well, watch any Hammer film, because some of them are filmed back-to-back, and you can clearly tell that was filmed back-to-back. What, it's got the same actors in every one of them? Yes. They're walking past the same bit of set. Yes. Every castle in a Hammer film looks the same. Yeah, yeah, completely. completely. Every... And it's this sort of... But you, you buy into it somehow. For some reason, you go along with it. You realise it's ridiculous. It is. It's... That's one of the things about horror, I think. We know sometimes horror is absolutely ridiculous, but we go along with it for some reason, for some bizarre reason. We go with it, yeah, well, even when we can see the sets are shaking and the sort of the makeup looks bad. Yeah, yeah, and but it, it does. And, I, and again, if you t- look at this film and you try to look at it in a linear kind of way, and you just think this is this is just this is bizarre. What a bizarre. It's not really getting yeah. half the time. Yeah, no, exactly. Going around in circles for the most part. I just well, what it is how we quite literally. You yeah, know, you, know, you look to the build. Somebody. Yeah. Yeah, you look. At he the... has a villager who doesn't help him at all. Goes back. <laughs> he goes back to the inn. Yeah. And then he meets. He meets Lord Summerell. Lord Summerell isn't very helpful. Goes back to the. Goes back to the inn. <laughs> then eventually, I think in the last twenty minutes, kind of the plot just kicks in again in the last twenty minutes or well, so. Well, it wakes up again, doesn't it? And I think, um, for me, um, and I don't know whether you agree with this, it has this sort of Lovecraftian strangeness to it. Well, in a way, yeah, it's got that sort of Lovecraft, what Lovecraft, well, love doing was the sort of those, like Innsmouth and all that, but it's a more real one, because we've probably seen these people in real life. If you go to a village anywhere in the world, in, in Britain, you probably feel like this around some of those villages when you're in the sort of very backwards areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel suspicious, you feel like they're always watching, like, um, probably the best example in another, in another medium is uh, probably like League of Gentlemen, which takes a lot of cues from the Wicker Man. Yes, yes. Uh, you always the an Edward thing. You always feel like there's somebody just watching. You always feel like you're being scrutinised everywhere you go. Yes, yes. I mean, this is. Um, I think it's a film that people sort of say, you know automatically recognise. Um, but it's a. They've ever seen it. Yeah, yeah, true. And I think it's a film of many, many layers. Oh, so it's gone. <sighs> forever yeah we could we could probably talk for a good three or four hours i'm not saying guys that we're going to be talking for three or four hours but um it's it is a multi-layered you know film on so you know if you just take it for its simplest you know at face value it is a you know it's a crime thriller slash horror yeah but then there's other things it's like it's a musical as well well, that's the, that's the other thing, um, and it's only really recently when I've gone back and sort of watched it again. You realise how important it is to the, well, how important it is to the film's character is its music. Yeah, and how fantastic the music is. Oh yeah, it was um, one of the most interesting things about it was um, is where some of the origins of the songs come from. Yeah, for example, you've got. Um, oh, the opening song, called, uh, well, one of the opening songs is a, is a song called Corn Rigs. Yes. Which is actually a um, a Robert Burns poem. 
Well, this is the thing. And again, Robert Burns pops up quite a few times, doesn't he, throughout the film? I think there's hints of it. I think sort of a lot of his lyrics come up and a lot of his poetry is mentioned because he's part of the Scottish character. You know, the fact they've got a knight named after him. Yes. We've also got the final song of the film is Summer Is A Coming In, which is a, um, a 13th century song. Yes. But one of the odd thing, none of the songs are actually about paganism. They're all old, they're all old folk songs from after that era. Yeah. But it taps into that sort of Britishness, that sort of sense of like the British character of the music. In fact, you've got like the brass band and all that and the, yeah, and all of you know, the sort of yeah. songs they chose. Now, for me, my favourite use of the music um, is in the pub. In the pub scene. Oh, the landlord's water. Yes. I think that is a great scene. And it's it could have been very, very big, but it's not. It's played very, very subtly, and I think it's shot very, very well. Um because I think one of the things that this film does suffer from sometimes is it's not it, it kind of feels a little bit, and it's probably more to do with budgetary reasons than anything else. It does kind of feel a little bit like a television film at times. I think it might be because it was quite. It was. Let's have a look what the budget was at the time. It was um, five hundred thousand pounds. You know that's that's not a lot. That's not a lot. Um, Even for the standards of. Yeah, um, and I mean it was shot in seven weeks. It was shot. It was shot very. Shot incredibly quickly, and in um, it was filmed in the wrong time of year as well. It's set during spring; it's the middle of November, <laughs> and it looks it as well. You can tell it's not springtime. It looks far too cold. Yeah, well, you know, and when you look at the trees around them and those type of things, you can clearly see it's not. You know, it's it's in the wrong season. Plastic trees. Oh yes, the exciting realm of plastic trees. But apparently, what <laughs> welcome to the all is... plastic trees podcast. Not <laughs> a Radiohead song. Yeah, it's, uh, I think. Well, there's a Radiohead connection to the Wicker Man as well. Oh come on, there, shoot it out there for me. Well, recently they released a song called "Burn the Witch," and its music video is essentially Trumped and meets the Wicker Man. Ah, nice. Wicker Man's one of those films like it's sort of influence can be felt everywhere in british cinema well british culture there's hints of it everywhere you know there's little um you see it referenced on television oh yes you see I, it i mean it's just one of those things. even famous you know when you think edward woodward even sort of sent it up himself when he did hot fuzz you know that sort of one of us moments yeah and it, it's got a, like extended moments which are tributes to the wicker man i'd yeah. say like just like little I mean, homages this is a film I think that is you has become part of the DNA of British cinema. Oh God, yes. I think it I is. think it's one of. I think British cinema is a set of you know every culture's kind of got those films. Everyone goes back to, and those are kind of the films of its culture. Like you've got like um, the Japanese cinema. You've got like your Akira Kurosawa's, your Yasujiro yeah. in films. Yeah, those are like those. Are, their, um, the building blocks of their cinema they are like the sort of the pinnacles of, of that nation's cinema in yes. Britain it's quite unusual because you've got like um, you go back you've got like the old Powell and Pressburger films like A Matter of Life and Death which I think is a wonderful film Yeah, and you've also got um, well what I find weird about British cinema is that you can talk about sort of things like Matter of Life and Death 
and things like the red shoes. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Like, and the Wicker Man in the same sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, but then if you think about sort of linking cinema together, you can go from uh, the red shoes to the Wicker Man to carry on on the buses back to the blood on Satan's. Everything is so combined and everything is so uniquely British. I think that's what comes from coming from a, a small island, essentially. It's a small culture, so we end up, things just cross over by accident quite a lot of the times. Yeah, yeah. Now, but we, our <coughs> is quite we, we said at the beginning of the so show... So small. Our film... Yeah, go on. No, go on. Please carry on. Our film culture, I think it's so small. It's almost, it's just, it's sort of almost incestuous in a way. You know, British film culture sort of feeds yes, on itself. Yeah, yeah, it does. No, you're right there. You're completely right. And I mean, I, there is one thing that I do feel that we have lost a little bit, and I think we're slowly getting back to it, is our ability to make um, genre films. Oh, I think it's something we were very good at. I think for, well, we did this in university, actually. We essentially argued that horror was Britain's genre. Well, America, like the Western, we had like horror films were Britain's we kind of made the niche out of it. We kind of made it into its own. Yes. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I think that's, I think there's a, there's an argument to be had there. I think, uh, I think it's a very, very strong, valid point. Um, but we kind of lost that for a while. Oh, I think because we became too Americanized, our cinema did. Yeah. Yeah. And then we sort we of, the sort of the adverse reaction to that was we start, you know, filmmakers like Ken Loach. Well, I think he's a great filmmaker. Oh, but... he's a superb filmmaker. But um, in terms of just throwing something on, you don't sort of think, oh, fancy a bit of Ken Loach. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the things I think is unusual about Britain. Is one of the strange things about British cinema is how almost every single British film ever made, whether it's by Ken Loach or whether it's like a Hammer Horror film, there's bizarrely something political in there. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's inherently political about British films. For some reason, we're all... Like, for example, we did this in uni as well. We said that Hammer horror films are always like a struggle struggle between, like, um, a sort of, like, almost like a working-class hero against an, an aristocratic villain sometimes. Yes. Yeah, well, there is that. There is that feel to it. the ultimate aristocrat. Yes, well, the Wicker Man is also got that, like, um, Lord Samurai, aristocratic villain. Well, yeah. And you've got... And, he, you know, he's this sort of, um, he sort of represents the establishment in a way. And the fact, the fact he sort of, in a way that he's used this sort of religious, sort of this religious belief to sort of take control of people around him. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? And and I think it's a great time now to jump into Christopher Lee's performance in this. Is that, oh, God, yes. in that, you know, that conversation that he has with Sergeant Howie about how his father and his grandfather came to the island. Um, oh, yes. And then essentially to manipulate um, the the sort of islanders, they sort of brought them back to their, you know, to the old gods, to the old beliefs, to the old, you know, to the to their their pagan roots, um, which again draws that sort of uh, Lovecraftian feel to me because it has it sort of sort of very very faint echoes of Dagon. Um, and in this little, the sort of echoes of that are just coming through, and 
Well, one of the things that's interesting about it is that I, is the ambiguity of Lord Summerisle, I feel. Because does he believe in anything he's saying? Well, that's the, that is the thing, isn't it? Um... Quite sure. Where does he is he just doing this because it gives him power, or or does he genuinely believe in everything he's saying? I think in in some ways, um, I think he does. He really, really does have that. Um, he, he does believe. I think it starts off um, with his family, anyway. Um, that but cynical. Yes, it does. Yes, very, very cynical. But actually, um, he he really does sort of. He, he starts playing it. into it. Yes, he does, and I think that's part. And and you know, Christopher Lee's performance could have been massive and bonkers, and really, really, it could have killed the film. But actually, oh god, in the same way that Woodward's performance is very stoic. Uh, and very grounded in reality. Um, so is Christopher Lee's. Well, he plays it. You know, when he played Dracula, Dracula always had this sort of... Well, Christopher Lee's Dracula had a mix of, like, um, this power on him, this sort of sinister, but also quite this sort of element of, like, almost like charged predatory sexuality to him. Like, there yes. was something quite quite charged about it. But what I like about Lord Summerisle is the fact he's so... He's just charming. He's such a charming character. Yeah. Which makes him that more sinister, I think, because you keep looking at him and you're just thinking, that's Christopher Lee. He's going to do something completely... He's going to do something horrible any yes. minute now. But yes, yeah. But he doesn't. He doesn't but until he the end. And, and even then, he's quite... He's polite. He's very um, nice yeah. about it, which makes him ten times scarier. Completely. No. The fact that he... In fact, he never rises to what, how he's... He very rarely... Well, he's in total control. He's in total oh, control. Now, instead of... Sort of uh, Christopher Lee had over... You know, you know, he had over 100 film credits. He, he appeared in 278 films. Good God. And out of the 278 films, he maintained... This is the one. He always maintained right to the end that this was his favourite film. And I can see why he can. He can see from his performance how much he did. Is he put his all into it? Yeah. So, just before we start getting to sort of wrapping things up, you know, um, because we've covered masses amounts. We, if you think about it, we've we've gone from the Wicker Man through the Carry On genre. We've even thrown on the buses in there. We've even managed to get um, David, you know, some fact trivia in there about David Bowie's love of mime. Um, so we've British, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, now obviously what we have to talk about is probably one of the most iconic moments in British cinema, which is the ending to this film. It's absolutely stomach churning to watch. Yes. It, even though I've watched it so many times and it blindsides me because I keep expecting him to get out, you know, to actually get out of this. But and apparently, that's what the apparently the studio heads wanted to change the ending. Well, this is the thing; they weren't happy with it. They really, really, and oh. that's why to this day there are there is very, very little original footage left because they claim it's under the M M four apparently M three. M3. It's it, was the M3. Another rumor. it was also another rumour that Rod Stewart wanted to destroy every copy of it. 
enlighten me. Because because he was married to Brett Eklund at the time. Right. And he was so offended, apparently, by the um, the scene where she's dancing naked. <laughs> apparently, it's, it's nobody knows if this is true or not, but there's a part of me which likes to think it would be true, because it just adds to the sort of... The bizarre... The weird, weird connections this film has got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you know another weird connection I think the film has got? Do you know Rowan Morrison in it? Yes. The girl who plays it would later go on to be in EastEnders. No. Uh, Rosie Miller from EastEnders. Really? Yep, that's it. I'm. There we are. I'm. I'm. My. I'm flabbergasted. My flabber has never been. That's. That's. That's insane. That is actually true. That is one of the things we discovered, and it baffled everyone who found out about it. Because <laughs> what a what a way to start your career. Yeah, yeah. You are the in, you you are the possibly the biggest MacGuffin in British cinema history. And you're only in it for like five minutes. <laughs> She's quite well, creepy, and, mind. Oh yeah, well, little all children in horror films are creepy, I'd say. Yes. Now just look at the. The end, the final shot of the film. Ah, the Wicker Man as it collapses. Yes. As the sun goes down. Yes. I think it is, it's, there is something visceral, but beautiful. I think it kind of sums the film up entirely. It's It's a perfect way to end it, but it was caught by accident. Yes, well, I was about to get, you know, you beat me to the punch there, but go on. They were apparently, essentially, they were just finishing off the shoot as it was just coming down. Yeah. They'd released the animals from it. They'd obviously released Edward Woodward from the structure as well. Yeah. And um, as they were, essentially, they're all sat around just waiting for it to go down. And then, well, then apparently, apparently at this point, uh, Robin Hardy had left, essentially not being much of a director, as I've described before. <laughs> I think he wasn't paying much attention. But then, there, um, I think it was the cinematographer suddenly looked and he saw the sun was coming down he went oh hang on quick setup quickly we gotta get this shot we've only got one chance to do this and they did it and it, they yeah. caught and it is beautiful one of the best shots it is. in cinema history i'd say yeah no i think I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you on that so well to wrap up because we could probably go on all day oh yes let's go to ratings um i'll go first because um, and then I'll try and defend by rating a little bit. Um, as much as I love this film, um, I don't think it's a perfect film. Oh, God, no. Um, I would say that it is an 8.5 out of 10. Good uh, rating, answer. I think it's an 8.5. Um, um, large part of it is I. Is anytime Britt Eklund is on screen, I can see the cogs turning. And... Her performance j- just sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, and it just takes that little. Whenever she's in there, she's she's quite jarring. It takes me out to the film. Um, but I would say it is a must own. It is a must own, and it is a film yes. that should be seen by everybody, and it should be and revisited cracking, regularly. It's a cracking two disc edition out now, which has all the versions on it. Right. And that's a must-have, just for the commentaries in the doc. It's a fantastic documentary on there, which I is about th- the making of it. I think that's the Blu-ray that I have. A Burnt Offerings, the documentary is, with, um, with Mark Kermode, because he's a Mark Kermode, the horror guy for Britain. Yes. Yes. So, One no ending for horror. Just look at him. Come on then, Mr. Jones. 
What's your rating on The Wicker Man? Well, I've I've never made it a secret that it is actually my favourite film of all time. <laughs> Fantastic. So it would have to be a 10 in that sort of completely subjective way. <laughs> it, kind of its flaws actually kind of make me like it a bit more because it gives me that sort of... You can sort of just see where they've gone wrong and you just sort of got that, oh Yeah. With it, you know, mentality. <laughs> like, oh. like they tried sometimes, but... And it's just made fascinating because the fact that the film should not have been finished in a way. No. There were so many things going against it. The fact that it was so cheaply made. A director who didn't know what he was doing half the time. <laughs> Most of it was directed by the writer. fact, in the final scene with the band playing, they actually couldn't play their instruments because they'd got high in, earlier in the day and they couldn't <laughs> finish the scene properly. And it was a film that had so much going against it. The fact the studio tried to kill it, essentially. Yes. They made it a B-movie in a time when B-movies were not in fashion anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't, it should not be as good as it is. It has so much going against it in a way, but it, it's the little film that could really. Yes. I think that's the, that, it, that is the perfect way to sum it up. It's, it is probably the ultimate British film in the way, just the fact that it's, it's got it's British to its core. The fact that it's kind of got that that sort of pers- it's persevered over the years. The fact that it should have been in a way it should have been forgotten about when it came out, and essentially it probably would have been forgotten about. But because people loved it so much, you know, those small group of people who saw it, because it only made about it only made fifty eight fifty eight thousand dollars. It barely made its money back when yeah. it came out. Yeah. It's a film that should not have lasted as long as it did. But over like a decade, people started reconsidering it and going, actually, this is a this is actually a really good film. And then you had that magazine, Cine Fantastique, which claimed it was the Citizen Kane of horror films. Yes. yes. It became this sort of... And for one, it was actually shown, part of it was shown at the Olympics in 2012 yeah. as an example of cinema. Yeah. The fact, that it, the fact that it had a remake in a way shows that it had that sort of value in terms of like its name value could warrant a remake in a way the fact that it was considered actually to be well known enough to warrant one the fact that things everything from like league of gentlemen to radiohead have referenced it it's kind of it is a cultural touchstone in a way it's kind of like it's almost like especially it's like a period piece where they're set in the 70s yeah and it sums up that era so well it sums up like a, a snapshot of british cinema Mr. Jones, you have hit the nail firmly on the head. It is, you know, I don't think anybody um, has summed up a film more accurately and with more vigour and passion. Oh, it's, uh, I think it's a masterpiece of British cinema and I think it's one of the ones that needs to be cherished and discovered by, it's one of the first films I show to friends. If I meet, if I have, have a friend over, it's one of the first films I'll show them because it's one I just love sharing with people. Well, sir, you've certainly shared your knowledge uh, uh, here. I'm completely blown away uh, with what you've shared with us today. Um, obviously, I'd like to say thank you very much. Um, no problem. Anything that you want to plug whilst you're on you? Because I know you you write. You've got you know your your Instagram is um, <laughs> is is it always is. fascinating. Well, um, I've got a. Uh... I've got a blog at the moment called uh, the Pop Culture Museum, where I discuss everything from film, music, television, to theatre, to literature. 
So hopefully, uh, put a, perhaps put a link of that in yeah. the, the description. Yeah, we'll, that'll be up on the up in the show notes. I've been a bit quiet at the moment on it because I haven't uh, because work's been getting in the way a bit. But if people, I've been hoping to start some writing some scripts because I want to get somewhere with um, known fiction work and all that, so I can you know get get my foot in the door in that way. Yeah. So if anyone wants, you know, if anyone if anyone's looking to hire someone to write scripts for them, here's your man. <laughs> I need the money. <laughs> Don't we all? Well, I'll Mr. Work, Jones. I hope we can have you back on very, very soon. I'd be more than happy to. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Um, and I'd like to say thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've absolutely loved being on you. Hope you know, to come on again. Look forward to having you on again soon. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. We've come to the end of episode eight. I'd like to say thank you once again to my brilliant co-host Liam. Uh, Liam's going to be back on episode 9 which is going to be Dracula 1958 from Hammer with the first time that Christopher Lee puts on the cape. Um, I'm very excited about that one. We've also got two very special guests coming on for that. I'm going to leave it with a little air of mystery about that one but it's going to be a good one so guys get yourselves back here for that episode. Um as always, um, I want to give a big shout out to Blake at Spivey Point. You can follow him on Twitter. That's his Twitter handle. That's Blake at Spivey Point. Um, uh, CJ at VHS Revival. That's also on Twitter and his blog, VHS Revival. Guys, get yourselves over there. Um, Blake, brilliant taste in film. Always uh, interesting tweets and uh, posters and pictures. Everything it's great. It's a great. He's a great guy to follow. Get yourselves over on to to uh, to his little Twitter handle. Also on uh, VHS Revival, CJ, very clever man. Um, some brilliant, insightful writing. Great stuff. Get yourself over there. And as always, if you're looking for a podcast that you want to be listening to, besides our own, of course get over and listen to the Horror Movie Podcast, where they are dead serious about horror. It is a superb podcast. Their episode, uh, their series of episodes on the slasher movie genre from the 80s is phenomenal. It is brilliant, insightful stuff. You know, you've got Jay of the Dead, you've got Wolfman Josh, and you've got uh, Dr. Shock himself, Mr. DVD Infatuation, Dave Becker. Get over there and listen to them. If you're looking for another Twitter um, uh I don't know, handle to follow or somebody to follow on Twitter, get over there and follow Dr. Shock's Twitter, his DVD infatuation blog. It's superb. It is brilliant. Um, a couple more shout-outs. I want to say hi to everybody over at Schlock Horror. That's on Twitter. At um, Mr. Leighton Winstone, our other co-host. I'm hoping to get him back on very, very soon. Cadavercast, absolutely superb. Get over and listen to them and follow them on Twitter. And you can follow them at cadavercast underscore cast. Um, I want two very special uh, people who potentially could be coming on the show is CL Raven. Um, and you can follow them at CL Raven. Superb writers. Um, I'm reading their book, Soul Asylum, at the moment. It is awesome. Guys, get yourselves over to them. You can, I think you can purchase this stuff on Amazon. Um, but no, they are really, really, really clever girls, uh, clever writers, really, really good. And that is about that. So once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for following me on Twitter. 
at, you can follow me at the undead wookie uh you can also come on to facebook because we have the undead wookie page on facebook um we are on soundcloud so you can follow us at the undead wookie on soundcloud and of course uh at our youtube channel uh so please do subscribe and follow and once again thank you very much for being with us and in the immortal words of count dacula good night out there whatever you are <laughs> Ha 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 ha!